0: Chapter 2 of Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin by Elizabeth Robbins Pennell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. First Years of Work, 1778 to 1785. Mary Wollstonecraft did not become famous at once, She began her career as humbly as many a less gifted woman. Like the heroes of old, she had tasks allotted to her before she could attain the goal of her ambition. It is difficult for a young man without money, influential friends, or professional education to make his way in the world. With a woman placed in similar circumstances, the difficulty is increased a hundredfold. We of today, when government and other clerkships are open to women, cannot quite realize their helplessness a few generations back. In Mary Wollstonecraft's time, those whose birth and training had unfitted them for the more menial occupations, who could neither bake nor scrub, had but two resources. They must either become governesses or ladies' companions." In neither case was their position enviable. They ranked as little better than upper servants. Mary's first appearance on the world stage, therefore, was not brilliant. The lady with whom she went to live was a Mrs. Dawson, a widow who had but one child, a grown-up son. Her residence was in Bath. Mary must then have given at least signs of the beauty which did not reach its full development until many years later, her sorrows had not entirely destroyed her natural gaiety, and she was only nineteen years old. The mission in Bath in those days of young girls of her age was to dance and to flirt, to lose their hearts and to find husbands, to gossip, to listen to the music, to show themselves in the squares and circus and on the parades, or sometimes, when they were seriously inclined, to drink the waters. Mary's was to cater to the caprices of a cross-grained, peevish woman. There was little sunshine in the morning of her life. She was destined always to see the darkest side of human nature. Mrs. Dawson's temper was bad, and her companions, of whom there seemed to have been many, had hitherto fled before its outbreaks as the leaves wither and fall at the first breath of winter mary's homeschooling was now turned to good account mrs dawson's rage could not at its worst equal her father's drunken violence and long experience of the latter prepared her to bear the former with apparent if not real stoicism we have no particulars of her life as companion nor knowledge of the exact nature of her duties But of one thing we are certain, the fulfillment of them caused her many a heartache. In Bath she was separated from her friends, she was alone in her struggle, and she held a position which did not always command respect. However, her indomitable will and unflagging energy availed her to such good purpose that she continued with Mrs. Dawson for two years, doubtless to the surprise of the latter, accustomed, as she was, to easily frightened and hastily retreating companions. Her departure then was due not to moral cowardice or exhaustion, but to a summons from home. Mrs. Wollstonecraft's health had begun to fail. Her life had been a hard one, and the drains upon her constitution many. She was the mother of a large family, and had had her full share of the by no means insignificant pains and cares of maternity. In addition to these, she had had to contend against poverty, that evil which, says the Talmud, is worse than fifty plagues, and against the vagaries of a good-for-nothing drunken husband. Once she fell beneath her burden, she could not rise with it again. She had no strength left to withstand her illness. Eliza and Everina were both at home to take care of her, but she could not rest without the eldest daughter, upon whom experience had taught her to rely implicitly. She sent for Mary, and the latter hastened at once to her mother's side. Her own hopes and ambitions, her chances and prospects, all were forgotten in her desire to do what she could for the poor patient, she waited upon her mother with untiring care. Mrs. Wollstonecraft's illness was long and lingering, though it declared itself at an early stage to be hopeless. In her pleasure at her daughter's return, she received her services with grateful thanks. But as she grew worse, she became more accustomed to the presence of her nurse and exacted as a right that which she had first accepted as a favor. She would allow no one else to attend to her, and day and night Mary was with her. Finally the end came. Mrs. Wollstonecraft died, happy to be released from her world which had given her nothing but unkindness and sorrow. Her parting words were, A little patience, and all will be over. It was not difficult for the dying woman, so soon to have eternity to rest in, to bear quietly time's last agony but for the weary, heartsick sick young girl before whom there stretched a vista of long years of toil, the lesson of patience was less easy to learn. Mary never forgot these words, nor did she heed their bitter sarcasm. Often and often in her after-trials they returned to her, carrying with them peace and comfort. Her mother's death took place in 1780, The family were then living in Enfield, which place had succeeded Walworth in their periodical migrations. After her mother's death, Mary, tired out with constant nursing, want of sleep, and anxiety of mind, became ill. She sorely needed quiet and an interval from work, but the necessity to depart from her father's house was imperative. He had fallen so low that his daughters were forced to leave him. The difficulty was to find immediate means to meet the emergency. A return to Mrs. Dawson does not seem to have suggested itself as a possibility. Mary's great ambition was to become a teacher and to establish a school. But this could not be easily or at once accomplished. She must have time to prepare herself for the venture, to make friends, and to give proof of her ability to teach. Fortunately, at this juncture, Fanny Blood proved a true friend, and offered her at least a temporary home at Walham Green. Fanny was still gaining a small income from her drawings, to which Mrs. Blood added whatever she could make by her needle. Mary was not one to live upon another's bread. Too proud to become an additional charge to these two hard working women, she helped the latter with her sewing and so contributed her share to the family means. Though she was happy because she was with her friend, her life here was well nigh as tragic as it had been in her father's house. The family sorrows were great and many. Mr. Blood was a ne'er-do-well and a drunkard. Carolyn, one of the daughters, had then probably begun her rapid descent downhill, moved there to poor girl by the relief which vice alone gave to the poverty and gloom of her home, George, the brother with whom Mary afterwards corresponded for so many years, was unhappy because of his unrequited love for Everina Wollstonecraft. He was an honest, good principled young man, but his associates were disreputable, and he was at times compromised by their actions. But still sadder for Mary, was the fact that Fanny, in addition to domestic grievances, was tortured by the unkindness of an uncertain lover. She had met not long before Mr. Hughes Gays, a young but already successful merchant. Attracted by her, he had been sufficiently attentive and devoted to warrant her conclusion that his intentions were serious. He seems to have loved her as deeply as he was capable of loving, but discouraged perhaps by the wretched circumstances of the family, he could not make up his mind to marry her. At one moment he was ready to desert her, and at the next to claim her as his wife. Instead of resenting his unpardonable conduct, as a prouder woman would have done, she bore it with the humble patience of a Griselda. When he was kind, she hoped for the best. When he was cold, she dreaded the worst. The consequence of these alternate states of hope and despair was mental depression and, finally, physical ill-health. Through her troubles, Mary, who had given her the warmest and best because the first love of her life was her faithful ally and comforter, indeed their friendship grew warmer with Fanny's increasing misfortunes, as she said of herself a few years later, she was not a fair weather friend. I think, she wrote once in a letter to George Blood, I love most people best when they are in adversity, for pity is one of my prevailing passions. She realized that she had made herself her friend's equal, if not superior, intellectually, and that so far as moral courage and will power were concerned, she was as much the stronger of the two. There is nothing which so deepens a man's or a woman's tenderness as the knowledge that the object of it looks up to her or to him for support, and Mary's affection increased because of its new inspiration. It has been said that it was necessary for all Mr. Wollstonecraft's daughters to leave his house. Mary was not yet in a position to help her sisters, and they had but few friends. Their chances of self-support were small. Their position was the trying one of gentlewomen who could not make servants of themselves, and who indeed would not be employed as such, and who had not had the training to fit them for higher occupations. Everina, therefore, was glad to find an asylum with her brother Edward, who was an attorney in London. She became his housekeeper for like Mary she was too independent to allow herself to be supported by the charity of others. Eliza, the youngest sister, who with greater love of culture than Everina had had even less education, solved her present problem by marrying. But she escaped one difficulty, only to fall into another still greater and more serious. The history of her married experience is important because of the part Mary played in it, The latter's independent conduct in her sister's regard is a foreshadowing of the course she pursued at a later period in the management of her own affairs. Eliza was the most excitable and nervous of the three sisters. The family sensitiveness was developed in her to a painful degree. She was not only quick to take offense, but was ever on the lookout for slights and insults even from people she dearly loved. She assumed a defensive attitude against the world and mankind, and therefore life went harder with her than with more cheerfully constituted women. Her indignation and rage were not so easily appeased as aroused. Altogether, she was a very impossible person to live with peacefully. Mr. Bishop, the man she married was as quick-tempered and passionate as she, and morally was infinitely beneath her. He was the original of the husband in the wrongs of woman, who is represented as an unprincipled sensualist, brute, and hypocrite. The worst of it was that, when not carried away by his temper, his address was good and his manners insinuating." As one of his friends said of him, he was either a lion or a spaniel. Unfortunately, at home, he was always the lion, a fact which those who knew him only as the spaniel could not well believe. The marriage of two such people, needless to say, was not happy. They mutually aggrieved each other. Eliza, with her sensitive, unforgiving nature, could not make allowances. Mr. Bishop would not. Much as her waywardness and hastiness were at fault, he was still more to blame in effecting the rupture between them. The strain upon Eliza's nervous system, caused by almost daily quarrels and scenes of violence, was more than she could bear. Then, to add to her misery, she found herself in that condition in which women are apt to be peculiarly susceptible and irritable her prospect of maternity so stimulated her abnormal emotional excitement that her reason gave way, and for months she was insane. Though she had passive intervals, she was at times very violent, and disastrous results were feared. It was necessary for someone to keep constant guard over her, and Mary was asked to undertake this task. Relentless as fate in pursuing the hero of Greek tragedy to his predestined end were the circumstances which formed Mary's prejudice against the institution of marriage. This was the third domestic tragedy caused by the husband's petty tyranny and the wife's slender resources of defense, of which she was the immediate witness. Her experience was unfortunate. The bright side of the married state was hidden from her. She saw only its shadows, and these darkened until her soul rebelled against the injustice, not of life, but of man's shaping of it. Sad as was the fate of the bloods, and much as they needed her, the bishop household was still sadder, and its appeals more urgent, and Mary hurried thither at once." Without a murmur she left Wallum Green and established herself as nurse and keeper to the poor mad sister. There could be no greater heroism than this. With a nervous constitution not unlike that of poor Bess, she had to watch over the frenzied mania of the wife and to confront the almost equally insane fury of the husband. To her desire to keep Everina posted as to the progress of affairs, we are indebted for her letters, which give a very lifelike picture of herself and her surroundings, while she remained in her brother-in-law's house. They are interesting because, by showing the difficulties against which she had to contend, and the effect these had upon her, we can better appreciate the greatness of her nature by which she triumphed over them." There is one written during this sad period, which must be quoted here, because it throws still more light upon Bishop's true character and his ingenuity in tormenting those who lived with him. Monday morning, January, 1784. I have nothing to tell you, my dear girl, that will give you pleasure. Yesterday was a dismal day, long and dreary. Bishop was very ill, etc., etc., He is much better today, but misery haunts this house in one shape or other. How sincerely do I join with you in saying that if a person has common sense, they cannot make one completely unhappy. But to attempt to lead or govern a weak mind is impossible. It will ever press forward to what it wishes, regardless of impediments, and with a selfish eagerness, believes what it desires practicable, though the contrary is as clear as the noonday, My spirits are hurried with listening to pros and cons, and my head is so confused that I sometimes say no when I ought to say yes. My heart is almost broken with listening to B, while he reasons the case. I cannot insult him with advice which he would never have wanted if he were capable of attending to it. May my habitation never be fixed among the tribe that can't look beyond the present gratification, that draw fixed conclusions from general rules, that attend to the literal meaning only, and because a thing ought to be, expect that it will come to pass? B. has made a confidant of Scase, and as I can never speak to him in private, I suppose his pity may cloud his judgment. If it does, I should not either wonder at it or blame him, for I that know and am fixed in my opinion cannot unwaveringly adhere to it, and when I reason I am afraid of being unfeeling. Miracles don't occur now, and only a miracle can alter the minds of some people. They grow old, and we can only discover by their countenance that they are so. To the end of their chapter will their misery last." I expect Fanny next Thursday, and she will stay with us but a few days. Bess desires her love, she grows better, and, of course, more sad. Though Mary's heart was breaking and her brain reeling, her closer acquaintance with Bishop convinced her that Eliza must not continue with him. She determined at all hazards to free her sister from a man who was slowly but surely killing her and she knew she was right in her determination. For some months Eliza's physical and mental illness made it impossible to take a decided step or to form definite plans, but when her child was born and she returned to a normal, though at the same time sadder, because conscious, state, Mary felt that the time for action had arrived. That she still thought it advisable for her sister to leave her husband— though this necessitated the abandonment of her child, conclusively proves the seriousness of Bishop's faults. It was no easy matter to effect the separation. Bishop objected to it. It is never unpleasant for a man to play the tyrant, and he was averse to losing his victim. Pecuniary assistance was therefore not to be had from him, and the sisters were penniless. "'Mary applied to Edward, though she was not sure it was desirable for Eliza to take refuge with him. "'However, he does not seem to have responded warmly, for Mary's suggestion was never acted "'upon. Theirs was a situation in which friends were not apt to interfere, and besides, "'Bishop's plausibility had won over not a few to his side. Furthermore, the chance was that if he worked successfully upon Mr. Skay's sympathies, the Bloods would be influenced. There was absolutely no one to help them, but Mary knew that it was useless to wait, and that the morrow would not make easier what seemed to her the task of the present day. What she now most wanted for her sister was liberty, and she resolved to secure this at once, and then afterwards to look about her to see how it was to be maintained. Accordingly, one day, Bishop well out of the way, the sisters left his house for ever. There was a mad breathless drive, Bess with her insanity half returned, biting her wedding ring to pieces, a hurried exchange of coaches to further ensure escape from detection, a joyful arrival at modest lodgings in Hackney, a giving in of false names, a hasty locking of doors, and then the reaction. Eliza, whose excitement had exhausted itself on the way, became quiet and even ready for sleep. Mary, now that immediate necessity for calmness and courage was over, grew nervous and restless. With strained ears, she listened to every sound. Her heart beat time to the passing carriages and she trembled at the lightest knock. That night, in a wild, nervous letter to Everina, she wrote, I hope B will not discover us, for I would sooner face a lion, yet the door never opens, but I expect to see him, panting for breath. Ask Ned how we are to behave if he should find us, for Bess is determined not to return. Can he force her? But I'll not suppose it, yet I can think of nothing else. She is sleepy and going to bed. My agitated mind will not permit me. Don't tell Charles or any creature. Oh, let me entreat you to be careful, for best does not dread him now as much as I do. Again, let me request you to write, as B's behavior may silence my fears. The Rubicon was crossed, but the hardships thereby incurred were but just beginning. The two sisters were obliged to keep in hiding as if they had been criminals, for they dared not risk a chance meeting with Bishop. They had barely money enough to pay their immediate expenses, and their means of making more were limited by the precautions they had to take. It had only been possible in their flight to carry off a few things, and they were without sufficient clothing. Then there came from their friends an outcry against their conduct— the general belief then was, as indeed it unfortunately continues to be, that women should accept without murmur whatever it suits their husbands to give them, whether it be kindness or blows. Better a thousand times that one human soul should be stifled and killed than that the Philistines of society should be scandalized by its struggles for air and life. Eliza's happiness might have been totally sacrificed had she remained with Bishop but at least the feelings of her acquaintances, in whom respectability had destroyed the more humane qualities, would have been saved. Her scheme, Mary wrote bitterly to Everina, was contrary to all the rules of conduct that are established for the benefit of new-married ladies. Many felt forced to forfeit the friendship of these two social rebels, though it grieved them to the heart to do so. Mrs. Clare, be it said to her honor, remained staunch. But even she only approved cautiously, and Mary had her misgivings that she would advise a reconciliation if she once saw a bishop. To add to the hopelessness of their case, the deserted husband restrained his rage so well, and made so much of Eliza's heartlessness in abandoning her child, that he drew to himself the sympathy which should have been given to her. Mary feared the effect his pleadings and representations would have upon Edward, the extent of whose egotism she had not yet measured, and she commissioned Everina to keep him firm. As for Eliza, she was so shaken and weak and so unhappy about the poor motherless infant that she could neither think nor act. The duty of providing for their wants, immediate and still to come, fell entirely upon Mary. She felt this to be just, since it was chiefly through her influence that they had been brought to their present plight. But the responsibility was great, and it is no wonder that, brave as she was, she longed for someone to share it with her. Her one source of consolation and strength at this time was her religion. This will seem strange to many, who, knowing but few facts of her life conclude from her connection with Godwin, and her social radicalism, that she was an atheist. But the sincerest spirit of piety breathes through her letters written during her early troubles. These passages, evangelical in tone, occur in private letters meant to be read only by those to whom they were addressed, so that they must be counted as honest expressions of her convictions and not mere cant just as she wrote freely to her sisters and her intimate friends about her temporal matters, so without hesitation she talked to them of her spiritual affairs. Her belief became broader as she grew older. She never was an atheist like Godwin or an unbeliever of the Voltaire school. But as the years went on and her knowledge of the world increased, her religion concerned itself more with conduct and less with creed, until she finally gave up going to church altogether. But at the time of which we are writing she was regular in her attendance, and though not strictly orthodox, clung to certain forms. There seemed to have been several schemes for work afoot just then. One was that the two sisters and Fanny Blood, who some time before had expressed herself willing and anxious to leave home, should join their fortunes. Fanny could paint and draw, Mary and Eliza could take in needlework until more pleasant and profitable employment could be procured, poverty and toil would be more than compensated for by the joy which freedom and congenial companionship would give them. There was nothing very utopian in such a plan, but Fanny, when the time came for its accomplishment, grew frightened. Her hard apprenticeship had given her none of the self confidence and reliance which belonged to Mary by right of birth. Her family, despite their dependence upon her, seemed like a protection against the outer world. And so she held back, pleading the small chances of success by such a partnership, her own poor health, which would make her a burden to them, and in fact, so many good reasons that the plan was abandoned. She then, with greater aptitude for suggestion than for action, proposed that Mary and Eliza should keep a haberdashery shop to be stocked at the expense of the much called upon but sadly unsusceptible Edward. Fortunately, Fanny's project was never carried out. Probably Edward, as usual, failed to meet the proposals made to him, and Mary realized that the chains by which she would thus bind herself would be unendurable. The plan finally adopted was that dearest to Mary's heart. She began her career as teacher. She and Eliza went to Islington, where Fanny was then living, and lodged in the same house with her. Then they announced their intention of receiving day pupils. Mary was eminently fitted to teach. Her sad experience had increased her natural sympathy and benevolence. She now made her own troubles subservient to those of her fellow sufferers, and resolved that the welfare of others should be the principal object of her life. Before the word had passed into moral philosophy, she had become an altruist in its truest sense. The task of teacher particularly attracted her because it enabled her to prepare the young for the struggle with the world for which she had been so ill qualified. Because so little attention had been given to her in her early youth, she keenly appreciated the advantage of a good practical education. But her merits were not recognized in Islington. Like the man in the parable, she set out a banquet of which the bidden guests refused to partake. No scholars were sent to her. Therefore, at the end of a few months, she was glad to move to Newington Green, Where better prospects seemed to await her. There she had relatives and influential friends, and the encouragement she received from them induced her to begin work on a large scale. She rented a house and opened a regular school. Her efforts met with success. Twenty children became her pupils, while a Mrs. Campbell, a relative, and her son, and another lady with three children, came to board with her. Mary was now more comfortable than she had heretofore been. She was, comparatively speaking, prosperous. She had more work to do, but by it she was supporting herself and at the same time advancing toward her clear-purposed goal of self-renunciation. Then she had cause for pleasure in the fact that Eliza was now really free, Bishop having finally agreed to the separation. Mary Wollstonecraft, at the head of a house and mistress of a school, was a very different person from Mary Wollstonecraft, simple companion to Mrs. Dawson, or dependent friend of Fanny Blood. Her position was one to attract attention, and it was sufficient for her to be known, to be loved, and admired. Her social sphere was enlarged. No one could care more for society than she did when that society was congenial. At Newington Green, she already began to show the preference for men and women of intellectual tastes and abilities that she manifested so strongly in her life in London. Foremost among her intimate acquaintances at this time was Dr. Richard Price, a clergyman, a dissenter, then well known because of his political and mathematical speculations. He was an honest, upright, simple-hearted man, Who commanded the respect and love of all who knew him, and whose benevolence was great enough to realize even Mary's ideals. She became deeply attached to him personally, and was a warm admirer of his religious and moral principles. His sermons gave her great delight, and she often went to listen to them. He, in return, seems to have felt great interest in her, and to have recognized her extraordinary mental force. Mr. John Hewlett, also a clergyman, was another of her friends, and she retained his friendship for many years afterwards. A third friend, mentioned by Godwin in his memoirs, was Mrs. Berg, widow of a man now almost forgotten, but once famous as the author of political disquisitions. In Sorrows Soon to Come, Mrs. Berg gave practical proof of her affection. If a man can be judged by the character of his associates— then the age, professions, and serious connections of Mary's friends at Newington Green are not a little significant. Much as she cared for these older friends, however, they could not be so dear to her as Fanny and George Blood. She had begun by pitying the latter for his hopeless passion for Everina, and had finished by loving him for himself with true sisterly devotion. To brother and sister both— she could open her heart as she could to no one else. They were young with her, and that in itself is a strong bond of union. They, too, were but just beginning life, and they could sympathize with all her aspirations and disappointments. It was, therefore, an irreparable loss to her when they, at almost the same time but for different reasons, left England. Fanny's health had finally become so wretched that even her uncertain lover was moved to pity. Mr. Skays seems to have been one of the men who only appreciate that which they think they cannot have. Not until the ill health of the woman he loved warned him of the possibility of his losing her altogether did he make definite proposals to her. Her love for him had not been shaken by his unkindness, and in February 1785 she married him and went with him to Lisbon, where he was established in business. A few years earlier he might, by making her his wife, have secured her a long life's happiness. Now, as it turned out, he succeeded, but in making her path smooth for a few short months. Mary's love for Fanny made her much more sensitive to Mr. Skay's shortcomings as a lover than Fanny had been. Shortly after the marriage she wrote indignantly to George. Scase has received congratulatory letters from most of his friends and relations in Ireland, and he now regrets that he did not marry sooner. All his mighty fears had no foundation, so that if he had had courage to brave the world's opinion, he might have spared Fanny many griefs, the scars of which will never be obliterated. Nay, more if she had gone a year or two ago— Her health might have been perfectly restored, which I do not now think will ever be the case. Before true passion, I am convinced everything but a sense of duty moves. True love is warmest when the object is absent. How Hugh could let Fanny languish in England while he was throwing money away at Lisbon is to me inexplicable. If he had a passion that did not require the fuel of seeing the object... I much fear he loves her not for the qualities that render her dear to my heart. Her tenderness and delicacy are not even dreamed of by a man who would be satisfied with the fondness of one of the general run of women. George Blood's departure was due to less pleasant circumstances than Fanny's. One youthful escapade which had come to light was sufficient to attach to his name the blame for another of which he was innocent.' Some of his associates had become seriously compromised, and he, to avoid being implicated with them, had literally taken flight and made Ireland his place of refuge. Mary's friends left her just when she most needed them. Unfortunately, the interval of peace inaugurated by the opening of the school was but short lived. Encouraged by the first success of her enterprise, she rented a larger house, hoping that in it she would do even better. But this step proved the prelude to an inexhaustible mine of difficulties. The expense involved by the change was far greater than she had expected, and her means of meeting it smaller. More pupils were not forthcoming to avail themselves of the new accommodations provided for them. Moreover, her boarders neglected to pay their bills regularly, Instead of being a source of profit, they were an additional burden. Her life now became unspeakably sad. Her whole day was spent in teaching. This in itself would not have been hard. She always interested herself in her pupils, and the consciousness of good done for others was her most highly prized pleasure. Had the physical fatigue entailed by her work been her only hardship, she would have borne it patiently and perhaps gaily. But from morning till night, waking and sleeping, she was haunted by thoughts of unpaid bills and of increasing debts. Poverty and creditors were the two unavoidable evils which stared her in the face. Then, when she did hear from Fanny, it was to know that the chances of her recovery were diminishing rather than increasing. Reports of George Blood's ill conduct, repeated for her benefit, hurt and irritated her. On one occasion her house was visited by men sent thither in his pursuit by the girl who had vilely slandered him. Mrs. Campbell, with the meanness of a small nature, reproached Mary for the encouragement which she had given his vices. She loved him so truly that this must have been gall and wormwood to her sensitive heart." Mr. and Mrs. Blood continued poor and miserable, he drinking and idling, and she faring as it must ever fare with wives of such men. Mary saw nothing before her but a dreary pilgrimage through the wide valley of the shadow of death, from which there seemed no escape to the Mount Zion beyond. If she dragged herself out of the deep pit of mental despondency— was to fall into a still deeper one of physical prostration. The bleedings and blisters ordered by her physician could help her but little. What she needed to make her well was new pupils and honest boarders, and these the most expert physician could not give her. Is it any wonder that she came in time to hate Newington Green, the grave of all my comforts, she called it? to lose relish for life, and to feel cheered only by the prospect of death. She had nothing to reproach herself with. In sorrow and sickness alike she had toiled to the best of her abilities. That which her hand had found to do she had done with all her might. The result of her labors and long sufferance had hitherto been but misfortune and failure. Though her difficulties accumulated with alarming rapidity, There was no relaxation in her attentions to Mr. and Mrs. Blood, in her care for her sister, nor in the sympathy she gave to George Blood. Perhaps the greatest joy that came to her during this year was the news that Mr. Scase had found a position for his brother-in-law in Lisbon, but this pleasure was more than counterbalanced by the discouraging bulletins of Fanny's health. Mr. Skaze was alarmed at his wife's increasing weakness and was anxious to gratify her every desire. Fanny expressed a wish to have Mary with her during her confinement. The latter with characteristic unselfishness consented when Mr. Skaze asked her to go to Lisbon, though in so doing she was obliged to leave school and house. This shows the sincerity of her opinion that before true passion everything but duty moves. To her, Fanny's need seemed greater than her own, and she thought to fulfill her duty toward her sister and to provide for her welfare by giving her charge of her scholars and boarders while she was away from them. Mary's decision was vigorously questioned by her friends. Indeed, there were many reasons against it. It was feared her absence from the school for a necessarily long period would be injurious to it, and this eventually proved to be the case. The journey was a long one for a woman to make alone, and last but not least, she had not the ready money to pay her expenses. But despite all her friends could say, she could not be moved from her original resolution. When they saw their arguments were useless, they manifested their friendship in a more practical manner. Mrs. Bergh lent her the necessary sum of money for the journey. Godwin, however, thinks that in doing this she was acting in behalf of Dr. Price, who modestly preferred to conceal his share in the transaction. All impediments having thus been removed, Mary, in the autumn of 1785, started upon the saddest, up to this date, of her many missions of charity. The reunion of the friends was a joyless pleasure. When Mary arrived in Lisbon, she found Fanny in the last stages of her illness, and before she had time to rest from her journey, she began her work as sick nurse. Four hours after her arrival, Fanny's child was born. It had been sad enough for Mary to watch her mother's last moments and Eliza's insanity, but this new duty was still more painful, She loved Fanny Blood with a passion whose depth is beyond the comprehension of ordinary mortals. Her affection for her was the one romance of her youth, and she lavished upon it all the sweetness and tenderness, the enthusiasm and devotion of her nature, which make her seem to us lovable above all women. But now this friend, the best gift life had so far given her, was to be taken from her." She saw Fanny grow weaker and weaker day by day and knew that she was powerless to avert the coming calamity. Yet whatever could be done she did. There never has been and there never can be a more faithful gentle nurse. The following letter gives a graphic description of her journey and of the sad welcome which awaited her at its termination and the still sadder duties she fulfilled in Lisbon. Lisbon, November or December, 1785. My dear girls, I am beginning to awake out of a terrifying dream, for in that light do the transactions of these two or three last days appear. Before I say more, let me tell you that when I arrived here, Fanny was in labor, and that four hours after, she was delivered of a boy. The child is alive and well, and considering the very, very low state to which Fanny was reduced, she is better than could be expected. I am now watching her and the child. My active spirits have not been much at rest ever since I left England. I could not write to you on shipboard. The sea was so rough, and we had such hard gales of wind, the captain was afraid we should be dismasted. I cannot write tonight or collect my scattered thoughts my mind is so unsettled. Fanny is so worn out, her recovery would be almost a resurrection, and my reason will scarce allow me to think it possible. I labor to be resigned, and by the time I am a little so, some faint hope sets my thoughts again afloat, and for a moment I look forward to days that will, alas, never come. I will try to-morrow to give you some little regular account of my journey— though I am almost afraid to look beyond the present moment. Was not my arrival providential? I can scarce be persuaded that I am here, and that so many things have happened in so short a time, my head grows light with thinking on it. Friday morning. Fanny has been so alarmingly ill since I wrote the above, I entirely gave her up, and yet I could not write and tell you so. It seemed like signing her death warrant. Yesterday afternoon, some of the most alarming symptoms a little abated, and she had a comfortable night. Yet I rejoice with trembling lips and am afraid to indulge hopes. She is very low. The stomach is so weak it will scarce bear to receive the slightest nourishment. In short, if I were to tell you all her complaints, you would not wonder at my fears." The child, though a puny one, is well. I have got a wet nurse for it. The packet does not sail till the latter end of next week, and I send this by a ship. I shall write by every opportunity. We arrived last Monday. We were only thirteen days at sea. The wind was so high and the sea so boisterous the water came in at the cabin windows, and the ship rolled about in such a manner it was dangerous to stir. The women were seasick the whole time, and the poor invalid so oppressed by his complaints, I never expected he would live to see Lisbon. I have supported him for hours together, gasping for breath, and at night, if I had been inclined for sleep, his dreadful cough would have kept me awake. You may suppose that I have not rested much since I came here, yet I am tolerably well and calmer than I could expect to be, Could I not look for comfort where only tis to be found? I should have been mad before this, but I feel that I am supported by that being who alone can heal a wounded spirit. May he bless you both. Yours, Mary. Her state of uncertainty about poor Fanny did not last long. Shortly after the above letter was written, Mrs. Gaze died. Just as life was beginning to smile upon her, she was called from it. She had worked so long that when happiness at length came, she had no strength left to bear it. Godwin, in his memoirs, says that Mary's trip to Portugal probably enlarged her understanding. She was admitted, he writes, to the very best company the English colony afforded. She made many profound observations on the character of the natives and the baleful effects of superstition. But it seems doubtful whether she really saw many people in Lisbon or gave great heed to what was going on around her. Arrived there just in time to see her friend die, she remained but a short time after all was over. There was no inducement for her to make a longer stay. Her feelings for Mr. Skeys were not friendly. She could not forget. That had he but treated Fanny as she, for example, would have done, had she been in his place, this early death might have been prevented. Her school, entrusted to Mrs. Bishop's care, was a strong reason for her speedy return to England. The cause which had called her from it being gone, she was anxious to return to her post. An incident highly characteristic of her is told of the journey home. She had nursed a poor sick man on the way to portugal on the way back she was instrumental in saving the lives of many men the ship in which she sailed met at mid-sea a french vessel so dismantled and storm-beaten that it was an imminent risk of sinking and its stock of provisions was almost exhausted its officers hailed the english ship begging its captain to take them and its entire crew on board the latter hesitated. This was no trifling request. He had his own crew and passengers to consider, and he feared to lay such a heavy tax on the provisions provided for a certain number only. This was a case which aroused Mary's tenderest sympathy. It was impossible for her to witness it unmoved. She could not, without a protest, allow her fellow creatures to be so cruelly deserted. Like another Portia come to judgment, she clinched the difficulty by representing to the captain that if he did not yield to their entreaties, she would expose his inhumanity upon her return to England. Her arguments prevailed. The sufferers were saved, and the intercessor in their behalf added one more to the long list of her good deeds. End of chapter 2